Curtis is Cam from the Nerdbook Review, and tonight we're going to be giving you guys another author interview. We will be interviewing A.M. Justice about her novel, A Wizard's Forge, which is the first book in the Warren Saga. We will get right to it just as soon as I tell you where you can reach me. You can reach us at nerdbookreview at gmail.com, at facebook.com slash nerdbookreview, and on Twitter with nerdbookreview as the handle. Once again, if you enjoy the podcast, if you could leave us a rating on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you to everyone who's done so, so far. And if we keep getting those, then we'll keep getting the word out there. All right. Without further ado, here is my interview. The Nerdbook Review is happy to welcome A.M. Justice author of A Wizard's Forge, the first book in the Warren saga. A Wizard's Forge was a finalist for the Next Generation Indie Book Awards and received honorable mention in the Reader's Favorite Book Awards. A short story set in the same world called The Weight of Bliss won first place for the 2016 Writer's Digest Popular Fiction Awards. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So, could you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? I read your bio, and it said that you had quite the interesting childhood. Yeah, my family, we moved a lot when I was a kid. My father was in the military, and and after my parents got divorced, my mother was trying to build her career. So, we moved every couple of years. I don't think I lived in, when I was a child, I never lived anywhere longer than three or four years. And it was all across the country. We went from Colorado to to Massachusetts to Colorado to California to Colorado to California. We just kept like hopping all around the country. And that was great experience in some ways because I got to see a lot of the United States. And it wasn't so great because I had to make all new friends every couple of years. Yeah, I could imagine that being uh, difficult I, I was lucky enough that um, I was actually born in Canada, but we moved back to the States when I was four, and I have lived the rest of my life, basically, within about a 20-mile radius. <laughs> yeah. Was he in the, the Air Force then? Is that where the, Air, the Colorado comes in? Yes. As a matter of fact, he was. So he, he was an officer, and that's also where some of the moving came around, because they, the Air Force actually put my dad through college and graduate school and they they actually paid for him to go to Harvard where he got his doctorate and then he taught at the Air Force Academy. Oh, so wow. yeah, it was it was a great experience for him. <laughs> and it was it was fun and and it was and I don't mean to say it wasn't it wasn't a great experience for us. I mean, I think we lived a good life from, yeah. based on that and then my father went on after he retired and was a college professor, which was also um really a, a good experience also to have your parents be in that kind of environment. So that, that was, that was nice, but the moving around a lot wasn't, wasn't as much fun. Oh so. yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Like you said, hard to make friends and keep friends that way. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, and as you get older and, and you meet and you end up at schools where there are a lot of kids like you were, where they've known each other their entire lives. And then you're coming in and it's like, okay, I'm the new person. And uh, it's, sometimes it's a little hard to make your way into those groups. Yeah. 
So do you think that that, that moving around influenced your this, the writing of this book? Um, you know, it's funny because I didn't really think about that very much until you sent me the pre-questions, but I think there there is some element of that with the just the aspect of the fact that Vic gets kind of dragged around her world by forces that are beyond her control. And and she keeps experiencing new things and getting landed in new situations and having that kind of sense of, of loneliness and being alone and then trying to find her way of to fit in with each new society that she ends up in. And I think that that, that, that probably was some subconscious influences happening when I, when I wrote those aspects of the story. Well, yeah, because especially, I mean, you know, even if you were willing to do your moves, they, they weren't voluntary necessarily, you know, while you were a kid. And that's something that happens to, to your main character as well. Right, exactly. So only hers is in a very much more dramatic and, and traumatic way than, than my moves were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good that your, uh, your own experiences weren't quite so traumatic as Vic's. So, oh, no, no. Thank, thankfully, I, that's entirely out of my imagination. So I'm happy to report for any relatives or <laughs> anyone who might be listening that nothing like, remotely like that's ever happened to me. Okay, good. <laughs> What were your hobbies then when you were growing up? I, I imagine that you moving around had to have something that could move with you. Yeah, that's that's true. I I read a lot. I that's that was sort of my refuge. And I think a lot of kids when you're I was sort of a natural loner to begin with and and then, you know, with the moving around and the lack of friends, books books definitely became my solace and my refuge. So that that was a big one. I started writing when I was in high school also as kind of an escape from not so much the escape an escape from my horrible life but more as I saw it an escape from my boring life. And um and you know I watched a lot of movies. I was pretty much a a sedentary kid. There were a couple of obligatory things that I did like ballet lessons and I was in this school marching band and so forth but but probably my the things that interested me most were reading fantasy and science fiction and then writing my own kind of little adventure stories okay and and who were the authors that that were influences for you um definitely uh, the one of the biggest influences when I was really young was Anne McCaffrey, whose work I just loved. And anyone who reads A Wizard's Forge and, and is familiar with Anne McCaffrey's work will immediately recognize some some uh, some influences there in terms of the setting and some of the uh, personality characteristics of the main characters of of between Vic and Lessa, who's the main character of. Dragonflight, which is the first book set in Pern that Anne McCaffrey wrote. But um, there were, you know, Ursula Le Guin was also a somewhat, and J.R.R. Tolkien were probably my most favorite authors when I was young. And Le Guin remains to this day, many decades later, she's still sort of my my literary idol. And she had, there was something like 23, is that correct? Or am I lowballing that number for how many of the Earthsea books there are? 
Oh no, there's only there's six Earthsea books. Oh okay, is it just yeah. uh, for some reason I was thinking that she that it was just a massive series. I guess I was wrong there. No, no, there are only six Earthsea books. The the Hain cycle. There are probably about maybe ten or so of those. Those that's her science fiction series that um, it, it includes. The Left Hand of Darkness is one of those, and um, and the Dispossessed, and and a number of other. Uh, there's probably there probably are about ten different Hain books, and then she's got she's got a lot of books that are just set in con- in contemporary Earth or the future of Earth or sort of dy- a, a dystopian future and so forth. So, you know, she's she's so prolific and she writes such a wide range of, of books that, you know, I just really admire her breadth of, of talent. Okay. Yeah. You know, I kind of am ashamed to say that I read the first book in uh, the Earthsea series uh-huh. right after college, but it was only like 200 and some pages long. And I was one of those pagists, if you will, where <laughs> I don't know if it was a combination of not having a lot of money right after college. And then just, you know, if I wrote, bought a book, I wanted it to be like 800 pages long, you know? Right, and right. I guess, yeah. I don't know, maybe that goes with that. Also that wheel growing up with Wheel of Time is my, my like seminal, you know, experience right. with, with that. So anyways, right. one of these days, I think now I would actually enjoy going back and, and, you know, reading something shorter. You know, it's and if you read the the Earthsea series as as a unit, if you read say all six six books, then maybe you might feel like you're getting more meat out of them. <laughs> you can probably get them as a as a boxed set uh, or as, even on Kindle. So, um, but don't make the mistake I did because the I read the fifth and sixth books out of order by accident. So don't do that. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'm not nearly so much of that uh, pagist these days. I think that uh, most of those uh, uh, Jordan books could have been 500 pages and been just as good as they they were. Right. Oh, yeah, I know. I I read I I read the entire Wheel of Time, and I I I have to say I love the first five books in that series. They I thought they were great, and the fourth book and the fourth book is probably one of my favorite fantasy books of all time. But then after that, I, I, I sort of really struggled. to. I, I stuck with it. I read the entire series, but I kind of started to struggle because they just get started to get a little bit... I felt like Jordan lost his way and, and, and couldn't really find, find exactly how he was going to... Couldn't find the story. Yeah. And so he just was just writing his way to it. I think he <laughs> pants that series. That's my theory. <laughs> yeah, well, and then the end books with uh, Sanderson, I think, were actually, once you got past the first couple, were the best books in the in the series, I thought. Yeah, I, I thought that Sanderson kind of got the series back on track um, to, to a degree. It never, never as good as the first, as the first five, but the... But Sanderson did sort of start to to write the ship, I think, a little bit, and I was happier with that. <laughs> All right. So, what are some of your hobbies and things you like to do today? I saw that you on your website that you like to scuba dive. Yeah, I'm a diver, and that's probably my favorite. That is probably my favorite um, extracurricular activity. The thing that I'd most like to do, if I could do it all the time, 
I I would if I could if I could dive three or four times a week I I probably would but I don't live anywhere close to water that's I I do live I live in Brooklyn so I'm right on the ocean but I'm not on an ocean that is comfortable or fun to dive yeah. <laughs> to dive in the North Atlantic not exactly known for its scuba diving no there you can there people do go diving around here but. That it's they dive wrecks and you have to get on a boat and ride for about two hours and go down 200 feet. So you you ride out in rough water for two hours to get about 20 minutes worth of diving in, and then you go back. And since I get I'm prone to seasickness, so I like I like my dives to be much closer to shore, much clo- much shorter boat rides and much longer dives. So. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm yes. that committed to the sport that I'm willing to ride for two hours for 20 minutes underwater. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've talked about uh, several other authors' books, let's go ahead and talk about your book a little bit. I think that with my podcast, uh, even with my author interviews, I try to talk a little more about, like, specifically about the books than maybe some of the other ones. And so your book is set in the future on a planet where they come from Earth. But the people, most of the people don't know that they, they came from Earth. Where did you get your uh, inspiration for this specifically? And could you just tell me a little bit more about it? Sure. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the sort of the concept for having, having people in a, what's basically a fantasy world, but having an, a, a, an ancient Earth origin came from reading authors like Ursula Le Guin and, and Anne McCaffrey and, and other authors who use that same trope of the space colony and then but then tell what, at least on its surface, might be more of a fantasy rather than a science fiction story. Uh, Anne McCaffrey's Pern series is a really prime example because the people on Pern in the first six books of the, of the Pern, uh, the, the first six Pern books, which would be the, the Dragon Riders of Pern trilogy and the, <clears throat> and the Harper's Hall trilogy, the, the technology that those people have is basically medieval level technology. And the technology on my world is medieval tech too. So it, because they've lost all of their, they, they've lived on the planet so long and been isolated so long from, from their ancestral origins on Earth that they've lost all of their modern technology and basically have to kind of like live with what they can make with the resources that are available on the planet. So they don't have electricity and metal is actually very rare on uh, Known Earth is the name of my world. Known Earth is metal is rare so a lot of people actually use stone tools and make tools out of porcelain and make them out of stone and ceramic and and and, and wood instead of you know having a kind of iron based society like we have and and then that sort of limits what they can actually do in terms of warfare and and some other things um, at the same time there's a certain there's a there's an indigenous species on the planet. They happen to be 18 foot tall insects that were <laughs> kind of inspired by the movie Them, with the giant the giant ants. 
<laughs> um, anyway, these are, the, they're called the Kragnashians, and they have their own level of technology that is theirs. And, um, and when humans encounter them, they, they find that the Kragnashians are actually much more technologically advanced than, than they are themselves. And, um, not in this, not so much in this book, but the, but the next book, there's actually a major conflict that happens between the humans and the Kragnashians. But in A Wizard's Forge, they're more sort of just this mysterious people that, that Vic encounters at some, at one point. And they impart to her, um, the source of her power, which she gets by the end of the book. So, um, anyway, those elements of science fiction and fantasy blended together are kind of, it, it's sort of a natural way for me to write when I write about fantasy because I have an, a strong interest in science. I actually, my, I earn my living, as, my day job is as a science writer. And so I like to have a scientific reason for why things are the way they are. So for me, it made sense to have the this world be a planet that was settled by earthlings in, in this case, several thousand years prior to the point where my story actually takes place. I really love the David Drake and Eric Flint novels. Have you ever read any of those? No, actually I haven't. Yeah. They, um, SM Sterling. I don't know if you know him or know of him. Mm -mm. Well, it's one of my little like guilty pleasures. He writes their alternate history books where uh -huh. like 1998, I think, is when the series started. And that's when technology basically completely stopped and we went to uh, just a medieval tech level. They're based uh -huh. in the northwest of the U.S. Uh, one of the major, like, I guess, not this not a kingdom, but is uh, the United States of Boise, which is only about 30 miles from my house. And then the books are, they're one of the major antagonists is the, the Portland Protective Association that kind of sets themselves up like knights. Anyways, uh -huh. but he does outlines for a lot of other authors, and one of them, there two of them are David Drake and Eric Flint, and they write novels where humanity was once, you know, starfaring just like like yours are, but and but none of them remember that they were ever that they were from Earth and you know were star travelers, and they're kind of all interconnected through like one computer that remember that was part of like a, a giant like intergalactic net that allowed people to move from planet to planet and is trying uh -huh. to like re bring them back there. Oh, that's funny. That's, that's very similar to Ursula Le Guin's Hain cycle because that's, it's, it's extremely similar to what she came up with where the, the, the galaxy has all of these planets that are settled by humans, but at least, some of them uh, have were settled so long ago that the people on, living on them don't don't remember that they come from anywhere else. So it's it's exactly it's actually the same kind of deal. And then they and then the um, they have this way of communicating that that allows for interstellar communications um, that's basically like almost instantaneous where that doesn't rely on radio radio waves but they but in her world they do, they still when people do travel between worlds they still don't have faster than light travel so it still can take like a century to go from one 
star to another, but they are able to talk to each other through this special communication device, which I can't remember the name of right now. Okay. Yeah, and then these, they don't think they actually ever get to the point where they are doing the interstellar travel, but we know that, like, the computer is, I think they send, like, satellites off to different places, and then they find, like, a general or somebody that has the ability to to reunite humanity on these planets. They're usually about, uh, like, late, I guess anywhere between, like, 18th century technology to very early 20th century technology. Uh-huh. So, um... Anyways, they're just something that, that I was thinking of, but they never remember that they are from another planet either in any of theirs for the most part. And so I think that one thing I, I specifically thought was a strength of your book was having one civilization or one society that still remembered. And I, so I loved the log, the idea of the log keepers. And, oh, cool. But yeah. It's just something that, that, that stands out as, a, you know, as something different for yours. You know, and you know what partly inspired the idea of the log keepers was the 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 book Fahrenheit 451, with the idea that people would, and you know, in that book, people were memorizing books because there were, you know, this this uh, totalitarian society was going around and burning all of all of the books, and so there were these people that took it upon themselves to memorize these books as, as a way of preserving them. And that's kind of what I thought that the log keepers, the idea behind the log keepers was, is that there would be, you know, they had these, these source documents, but paper degrades over time. And if they have no way to replace it, the only thing they can do is memorize them. And so that was kind of my thought with, with Vic and her, and her, and her first, career, her first vocation that she has in the book is that she's one of these people whose job it is to memorize all of the logs. And they put so much brain power into memorizing the logs that they don't actually have anything left to innovate. And and that's why her her own people are really stuck in this kind of like you know, they, they live on the fringes of the world. They, they live in, a, in an environment that's not very friendly. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily very easy to survive because it's, a, it's the steppes in the far north of the world. So their growing season is very short. And survival by itself is, is kind of a challenge up in the, in the place where she lives. And so in in a way it's kind of extraordinary that her society even has put in the the mental energy to to devote to this exercise they have of preserving these ships records from 3000 years before but not yet that's something that they've decided was was worthwhile for them to do and then and then but all they have uh, intellectually you know, in terms of how much energy you can put into something, basically all they have is is just to memorize it and and preserve it. So, I I kind of liked that. That's where that kind of came from. That idea of of the fact that they're the preservationists. And then when they when she travels to the rest of the world, she and she finds these other societies that have grown up and they've completely forgotten their their origins. 
And while they do have some of the same documents that she had access to as a youth that she, she learned about the origins of humankind, everyone else treats those documents as religious texts and, and as, as metaphors for human origins rather than as actual truth. So, and that was another thing that I wanted to explore is this idea of, of religious dogma and where it comes from and how, how it develops into how we take, you know, the stories of our ancestors and either consider them as truths or turn them into, you know, parables of that, where we take morality lessons from them. And that's their only purpose. I'd see that as I studied both history and religious studies in college. And I think that not to get too into like talking about the Bible here, but you know, a lot of those stories were just tribal stories of how the the Hebrews saw the world and, you know, they turned into to religious texts far, far after they were, you know, they were just historical documents or like more of a apocryphal tales for the Hebrews than anything else. Yeah, that's kind of what the idea was behind the, the, the religions in known earth, that they somehow twisted, it, twisted the original stories of the settlement of the planet into, into these religious parables that are meant to be um, interpreted in a very loose and metaphorical way, and then and also to draw some sort of moral lessons from them. So, what would you classify your book as? I kind of that's the one thing I was thinking of. It's not, is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Yeah, um, I would call it science fantasy. So, and sometimes when I'm because people haven't really heard a lot of people haven't heard that term, and it's not something that you can category you can't pick. On, when you're classifying your book on Amazon, you can't choose the science fiction category. But so, you know, for I would say it's a it's a blend of science fiction and fantasy. But one way of describing that is a, is a term called science fantasy, which was coined back in the 1940s or 50s, and it basically describes books that that have elements of science fiction and elements of fantasy. Um, superhero stories are science fantasies because they, because you have, they take place in a modern world um, and they frequently have scientific or science fiction elements in them, but they also have a, quote, usually quite a bit of supernatural things that can't be explained by science, um, that don't have a scientific explanation for superpowers going on. There, and there are supernatural powers in known Earth, but as readers will discover in the next book, there is actually a scientific explanation for it, similar to the mid-Claridians in the Star Wars series, so where the, the, the Jedi can, can access the Force through, through those... Um, mysterious organisms that's what the Wern are so when the the the, t the series title is the Wern saga the Wern are actually neurologic parasites that give people telekinetic powers who when they become infected with them oh okay so yeah yeah because it isn't described in in this book no it's not described in this book Vic, Vic actually acquires these powers and she doesn't know she doesn't understand in this book 
what's happened to her. Okay. And then one thing I, I definitely want to talk about, this is where most of the criticism that I've read on reviews from your book stem from, is mm-hmm. that people who say that they stop reading once they get to the sexual slavery aspect. Um, mm-hmm. My own opinion is is that those people must stop reading as soon as they hear that it's going to happen, like maybe while she's still at the market, because I don't think that what happens is gratuitous. And it's also something that shapes the entire novel. So it's not just there to be titillating or anything like that. So what would you say about that? I, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think some some of the readers who've, uh, first of all, just, yes, there have been a number of reviewers who have left pretty negative reviews because they didn't like those aspects of the story. And they either they either did stop reading when they got to that part, or if they kept reading, they wanted the story to play out in a different way than, than it did. And I think, I think all authors have to deal with that with, with reviewers, whether they're writing a con something, whether they're addressing controversial topics or not. When, when a reader is reading a story, sometimes they want this. They want the book to be a different book than the one that they picked up, and they'll leave a bad review because that the book didn't fulfill their own expectations for what it for what it was going to be. And I think a lot of the, the readers who have left negative reviews on my book really wanted. They might not have minded the idea that there's sex abuse happens in the book, but but what they wanted was a very much more black and white, straightforward, you know, woman is abused and then she goes out to, you know, get revenge in a very clear cut way. And the fact that Vic has um, really conflicted feelings and really struggles with, with the legacy of what was done to her through the entire rest of the book, I think some readers actually have trouble with that. They have trouble understanding it. They have trouble um, acknowledging that her conflicted feelings might be real um, or, or are realistic. And, um, you know, and so there, that's where some of the difficulty comes. I've had other readers who said that it was actually the thing that they liked best about the book was how how she was really conflicted in her feelings and she, and it was a struggle and, and something that was difficult for her. And that that's, that is actually the most realistic aspect of the book because Vic is basically a victim of domestic abuse and she has Stockholm syndrome and it is, and finding her, inner strength to be able to confront her abuser and, and deal with him, um, is, is basically what, what the entire book is about. Yeah. And for me, I just saw her as someone who clearly had PTSD, uh, Stockholm syndrome. She, Mm -hmm. and most of what happens to her is psychological, not physical. So you can see where, it just affects every bit of her, and she spends months being, you know, psychologically tortured by this person. I think that you look back at, like, even, like, interviews that, like, say, Elizabeth Smart or someone like that who, you know, endured years and years of abuse. They, you know, she had, would have had, should have had multiple chances to escape, and she chose to stay because of the psychological, you know, horrors that were inflicted upon her 
So I don't see, I guess, I really do think that most of those people just stopped reading once they got to the slave market and were like, well, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I've, I've always, you know, a little bit baffled because I think the book's description makes pretty clear um, that, that something not nice is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I, I'm always baffled. It's like, what did these people think that they were getting into when they when they started it? And, um, on the other end, maybe they were looking, maybe they thought it was going to be like Fifty Shades of Grey or something where <laughs> there was, uh, I don't know. It's, it's it, oh, well, Vic isn't, is not physically abused, like you said. He, he never actually, um, except for one, you know, one episode, he never actually hurts her yeah. physically, but he, but, but he does terrify her. And, and it is, it, it is, there's a lot of psychological, um, you know, he messes her up is, is the, you know, he, and the, in a way that she spends years trying to recover from, and it prevents her from, from embarking on healthy romantic relationships when when she has the opportunity for those and um you know that's kind of and and it also is is sort of like it also fed her her taste for blood and and violence in a way that was also equally unhealthy that she comes to recognize as the novel goes on so yeah and she she, they, she will take part in that at that during that point while she's actually fighting in a, a a generational war, the mm-hmm. book will take a, a four-year leap, correct? Yes, yes, there is there is a time jump, which some readers also have an, have an issue with. Um, there, it, the book starts, she's a teenager when it begins, and then um, basically she escapes, she joins the army, she gets, you see a few scenes of her sort of like starting on her road as a warrior, and then it does jump forward in time and to a point where she's an adult and an officer in the in the Lathan army. And and I did that because in my mind, I I just didn't think that the reader needed to see four years of Rocky training with her, you know, you know, <laughs> running up the steps and <laughs> no you know, montages. The, the montage, yeah. I thought I thought we could skip the montage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she spent four years getting really really good at killing people that's all you need to know yeah and i don't think we need to go like super in-depth into the like the lathans and and the other ones what were they called there it's realm the realmans the realms the realms and the lathans okay i wasn't sure so the we don't need to go too in-depth into the realmans and the lathans but your website is really really good it's interactive. You can click on the map and have things show up. Um, what are some of the other things that are available on it? I think, the, from to my mind, the map is the most exciting part of that website. When I was working on that, when on the site with a couple of uh, people who helped me develop it, and I told them, you know, I want to have this map here, and I can't remember. It just we we were we were having a, I think it was their idea to do a little interactive, an interactive thing. And I think it just turned out so well. I'm, I'm really excited by it. But the, 
the um, so there's the map there and readers will go and there are question marks that you can click on the question mark and it will tell you a little bit about that that place on the map um, there are little icons that tell you about the people who live there 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 are photographs that um, represent the landscape what the what I imagine the landscape actually looks like in that place so um, you, readers can get a real sense of what the world itself seems like and um, but there are there's a whole list of of uh, frequently asked questions that basically acts like a, a glossary like Robert Jordan always had at the back of his novels, the, the, the Wheel of Time, all of the, the glossary that tells you who all the characters that you forgot their names. Um, well, when you're 12,000 pages in, you know. <laughs> exactly. exactly. When, you, when there was somebody that was mentioned like twice in book five and then they, in, in book seven, they come back and they have a whole chapter to themselves and you're thinking, who is this? This person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I just for anyone out there that it, that will read this because uh, you know after looking at this, I absolutely recommend going to that. I did early on. Um, I just looked at your Goodreads page and saw that you had a website, and I went to it, and it just helped me so much right off the bat of just being able to picture. Not that not that it was tough. You know, you didn't make a, a convoluted world that was hard to figure out. But after looking at that interactive map and clicking on like the 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 world tree and things like that, like it was really it was cool to look at, and I found it to to honestly be helpful. Cool. Well, I'm I'm glad you you made me very happy because I'm glad to know that somebody was actually making use of that. <laughs> um, and and there so there are lots of questions and answers, and you can also find on the on the website just more information about me and and the other books that are planned in the series. What is your plan with the series going forward? Like, how many books are you going to do, or any more short stories? I I anticipate that that the core series will be three books. So the um, Wizard's Forge is the first. The next book will I hope to get out next year and that's called a wizard's sacrifice and that's going to follow Vic's continuing adventures as she confronts the there's a destiny that that is hinted at in in wizard's forge and she's going to come to come up against that destiny in a wizard's sacrifice and also as i as i mentioned earlier there's a major conflict with the the between the humans and the other intelligent species that lives on this planet, the the Kragnashians, that happens in a wizard sacrifice, and so there there that one act, that book actually has big battles with thousands of of beings fighting each other, and so lots of. Um, and much more it's there's a lot more magic in the next book kind of more of an epic fantasy feel to it than than this book without okay. without the epic fantasy um creatures since since my creatures are still giant insects not dragons or orcs or anything like that <laughs> the <laughs> um and then the, the third book in the series is going to be uh the spoiler alert, Vic is still in it. Um, but the third book is going to be more about the next generation of, of people with the, the same powers that she has. So 
Um, and also, there there's an event that happens in the near the end of A Wizard's Forge that's basically going to come back in in A Wizard's Legacy, which is the third book, and be sort of the the source of the conflict that's happening in the third book. Okay. I know you, you you have the one that was award-winning short story and I, then I, are you planning on you think you're going to do any more of that? Yeah, yeah, I actually I have a handful of short stories that I have written that I would like to I'd love to publish as a collection. So, I need to actually get a few more <laughs> stories in the in the can for that purpose. But the the one that won an award, that was that and that was really a a I, you know, I was so honored to receive to receive that award from Writer's Digest, but the, it's called The Weight of Bliss, and it's about a um, it's about a, a a physician, a healer, who has a, a drug problem, and he he's grieving the the loss of a of a lover, and it and so he's just trying to deal with that in the short story. But one of the people who makes a cameo appearance in the short story is the villain of A Wizard's Forge. Um, in in this particular short story, he's a child, and so this this happened. The short story happens when Lorne is quite young, when he's only ten years old. But he does make an appearance in the short story. Okay. And the same, and the the main character of the short story will turn up in in. Um, the in Wizard's Sacrifice and, and and Wizard's Legacy as well. So he's he's not he's going to come back as well. Okay, so everything is tied together then. Right, right. And then, do you have any plans on writing any books that aren't part of this world in the future? Um, for right now, I've actually on my I, I started about ten years ago. I started a a books. Uh, straight historical book it's not fantasy straight historical set in the renaissance in renaissance florence in venice and it's called galileo's doctor and it's about a a a woman who wants to have a career um she doesn't want to be just a wife and mother and so she dresses up basically she disguises herself as a man and and um attends university and becomes a medical doctor and then will become sort of a protege of Galileo in the in the novel. Okay. Have you ever uh, visited Venice or Florence? I have. I have. Actually, Florence, um, we went to Florence quite a few years ago, probably back in 2004. And we went to I, I wanted to go to Galileo's house and we walked past it, but we didn't know that if you that, <laughs> the, that the museum is closed on Tuesdays. It happened to be a Tuesday, and we we went up there and we wanted to go, and the museum was closed. So that was a disappointment. Um, didn't do our research, and then we we also went to Venice. I've been to Venice twice. I love Venice. It is beautiful. See, that's funny. I actually didn't care all that much for Venice, but could really? live in Florence. We actually went this summer. Uh, Venice, I, I thought one day it was cool. I saw everything that I wanted to see. And then uh, <laughs> Florence, we were only in the city for one day. We did a, like a wine tour. It might be the most beautiful region I've ever been in. 
But I oh, just yeah. loved Florence and just walking around and had some amazing food there too. And I, I think it's just a, such a cool city. It's funny because, yeah, I think both of them you could easily spend, you could spend a month in it. I would give Venice another chance. If you, you have to kind of get off the beaten path, but there's so much to see. I just, I always, every time I go to Venice, I feel like, oh my gosh, I've only barely scratched the surface <laughs> of everything that's here. And, but, you know, it's, Venice can be crowded and, and, you know, there are certain things about it if you, uh, in certain areas where, where I, I kind of like to avoid, like anywhere, you know, St. Mark's Square, where, you know, you pay like $20 for a dish of ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) Or like $8 per person for a a seating fee. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. But you know, if you, if you kind of just have to accept that when, when we, we actually were in Venice, not this past summer, but two summers ago, and we had taken the train and a night train from Paris to get there. And the night train was not a good experience. Um, I, I, I sort of had this idea that it would be like the Orient Express and (laughs) It was anything but. It was pretty, pretty, pretty awful. It was like it was like 95 degrees, and the air conditioning on the train wasn't working. So we were in a metal tube with it being 95 degrees outside, and and oh, it was it was awful. Um, well, that but, makes that makes me feel so much better. We we thought I wanted I love trains, and I almost did that, and I was like, no. The train is hours and hours, and it's a 40-minute flight. Just going to take the flight. And it was cheaper to fly as well. Oh, was it really? Yeah, the, it, was, the, it was like $45 per person or something like that for a one-way trip on a, on the um, for the flight. And flying between where and where? Barcelona to Nice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, maybe. It, I think from, from when we looked at it, it did seem like it was more expensive to fly to go between Paris and, and Venice. And I think I honestly, I just wanted the romance of, of taking the train. (laughs) Well, that's fun. That's a fun story though. I mean, you know, once it's over with, it's a fun story. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, good, good to share good laugh about over wine, but I'm glad that you guys enjoyed your trip. It sounds like you guys had a great experience going from so you started in barcelona and you ended in venice Uh, no we started in lisbon um and probably like my favorite place i've ever visited in my life um right up there with reykjavik in iceland at the end but lisbon's kind of nice and cheap as opposed to reykjavik which is the fourth most expensive city in the world i think wow yeah and so then we went to from lisbon to barcelona from barcelona to nice and then on to venice florence and rome Wow. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. That's I haven't been to Rome, so that maybe next next time we go to Italy. Yeah, as a as someone that loves history, it it was just so cool to like see like Trajan's column and and the col- walk around the Colosseum and the Forum, you know. It's just it's a it's kind of a I mean, it's a crazy touristy city, but if you love history, it's just something that, you know, I think you have to do. Yeah, I I know what you mean. That's how that's how I feel in in Florence and Venice too. It's just like soaking it all, soaking it all up. And 
I have actually a couple more questions still, but but I think we're getting a little bit long to continue on. So uh, real quick, let's go ahead and why don't you just tell us some of the places that you can be reached and I will, in the episode notes, make sure I have all of these links for people to get to. Okay. Well, um, people can first and foremost find me on my website, which is amjusticeauthor.com. And um, my Facebook page also, I believe, has AM, AM Justice uh, Author in, in the Facebook title. You can follow me on Twitter at um, AM Justice Writes. And those are those are probably the main the main places where you can find me and um, and uh, see what I have to say. Awesome. For those of you who are listening, usually I do a like an eight to 10 minute review. I think we talked about the book really well. So this is going to after this be a two minute review (laughs) just so that we're not going crazy, crazy long. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight and have a good evening. Okay, thank you, Cameron, for having me. Thank you. All right, I hope everyone enjoyed the interview. As I said, we are going to go ahead and give you a real quick review. I think we did a pretty good job of talking about all the main points in the book during the interview. So, the big thing, obviously, whether most people are going to like or dislike the book is based off of the fact that Vic gets taken and is a sex slave. As I said, I feel like uh, Amanda does a good job of how she deals with it. But you know what? If you have issues with something like this, then it's just good to know. I'm not here to say whether someone should or shouldn't have issues. I understand that people have different experiences in life. And for some people, this is going to be an issue. I would go ahead and rate the book a good, a four, maybe a four plus. I enjoyed the book quite a bit. Uh, Clearly, the main audience is for more of an adult or a mature teen. The book was very entertaining, and I like the change-up of the one civilization still knowing they're from the stars, while the others mainly thinking they're they're the crazy ones. Uh, I thought the magic involved was very good. I don't think it was overwhelming. I do think that there is a chance, though, that Vic will be super crazy powerful if you don't like that kind of magic in the second book, but that's not the case here. The and and it's kind of explained as as her being able to manipulate physics. Remember, Vic is a very scientific-minded person. I thought the lack of uh, metal was kind of a cool uh, thing that made battle a little bit different. Subterfuge and ambush attacks are more important since you have bows and arrows, and then for the most part, people are used daggers, especially since you know holding a six-foot-long flint sword would be insanely heavy i think for the most part you're going to enjoy this book if you like fantasy it's not i wouldn't call it high fantasy uh it it doesn't have you know a crazy long journey (laughs) that i think of as that but it is definitely entertaining you know you know most of the details so it's up to you to decide but i would recommend reading the book i'm not going to say that i did the best job i've ever done here trying to make a two minute long deal here but you should have gotten most of the details from the interview. Once again, I would recommend the book, and I hope you all have a good night and enjoy the podcast.